This podcast is sponsored by ReformationSites.com, church websites for a modern Reformation. Listen for a special May offer at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The authority of the civil magistrate then is not absolute, it is relative. Just as all human authorities are relative, parental authority is relative, elder authority is relative, it's not absolute. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, James Dalzell. James, how are you doing today? I'm well. Looking forward to our conversation. I am too. This uh, this is very timely. The topic of our conversation and the topic of the book that we're highlighting is is one that many uh, many Christians have been discussing in in recent years, largely because of um, the circumstances surrounding COVID nineteen. But there are other reasons why people why it's been on people's minds as well. So we are delighted today to welcome Oliver Allman Smith. He's an elder at Trinity Grace Church in Manchester, uh, in the United Kingdom, and he's been, the pa- he's been in pastoral ministry since 1998, has a degree in history from Cambridge University, and is a trustee at a school with which James has an affiliation, International Reformed Baptist Seminary in Mansfield, Texas, and also Trinity Pastors College in Nairobi, Kenya. And so, uh, Oliver, thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you, man. I want to start with a with a basic question. I alluded to the fact that this is something people have been talking about quite a bit lately, but I'm wondering in your case, what motivated you to write a book on the Christian's relationship to the civil magistrate? And I should mention this. I don't think I mentioned the title in my introduction. The title of the book is Under God Over the People. So it's on this issue of the civil magistrate. So what was it that motivated you to write this? Yeah. We were motivated to begin our thinking about these things as a church um, in the middle of 2020. So once we'd got over the hiatus of the the immediate COVID shock and we'd all had a little time to think through what our response ought to be, uh, we immediately thought, well, we've got to go to our fathers in the faith uh, and see how they work these things through. So we had a series of Bible studies late summer, early autumn that year, uh, focused on chapter 24 of Second London. And that really was the beginning of what what has become this short book. Maybe we should say something about what chapter 24 uh, in the Second London Confession is, because this was a a reform phenomenon once upon a time that the church would make a statement about the relationship of the Christian to the civil magistrate. Um, so maybe maybe we could just break down briefly what what does your confession, the Second London Confession, uh, which is not dissimilar uh, to the Westminster in this connection, say about that? Sure. Um, well, as you say, James, we are a confessional church, and and that means that we root ourselves consciously in this reformed and confessional tradition. Going back to the 17th century, in our case, the latter part of the 17th century, ours written in 1677. Now, that comes out of the Westminster tradition, uh, and our fathers were were very concerned to to be seen as in that tradition of orthodoxy. But nonetheless, on the subject of the civil magistracy, they took a somewhat different view. Um, So what we have in chapter 24 
is the outline really of what we would see uh, as a biblical view of the relationship with the civil magistrate. The civil magistrate is uh, appointed by God unto his particular calling, which has been defined by God. He has been empowered by God to that calling. And then we as Christians in the civil realm have a responsibility that may take two forms. One, we can either be a part of that civil magistracy as Christians, cooperating and participating actively, engaging as civil magistrates ourselves. And our fathers in the faith saw that as an entirely biblically legitimate thing to do in light of both biblical example and teaching and the history of the church. But then secondly, and perhaps more uh, relevant to all our listeners, uh, we are citizens in a particular state. Now, as citizens of a state, we are under that authority, which is God appointed, but we are only under the authority because God has placed us under that authority. So the authority of the civil magistrate then is not absolute, it is relative, just as all human authorities are relative. Parental authority is relative. Elder authority is relative. It's not absolute. There's only one absolute authority, and that is God uh, in Christ. So hopefully that gives a little context. I want to zero in on that second aspect that you mentioned. So you mentioned, of course, first that Christians could legitimately be involved in uh, in as part of the, the government, as part of the civil magistrate, but also that we had to, under God, be in submission to them. What are some examples, perhaps, of, of situations in which a Christian might be exempted from this submission because of the greater submission to God, or are those very rare and limited? How, how, would, you, how would you delineate those possible situations? Firstly, in relation to the Christian as a civil magistrate, I think it's extremely important to emphasize uh, our position as a church uh, following Second London, it would be that there is a distinction between the authority of the civil magistrate and the authority of uh, the church. And that as such, um, that there are two realms, two spheres at work there. And they, these two may interact and interconnect in it. In fact, they inevitably will. And in the book, I tease out some of those things. Uh, but they are nonetheless distinct realms, distinct spheres. So if a Christian engages in civil magistracy, although he does so as a believer, he does not do so with the authority of the church. He doesn't bring the authority of the church into the civil realm, as it were. No, he acts as a Christian within the civil realm as uh, one magistrate amongst many. And in the book, I I, I develop that a little and say, look, if, if you're going to be a Christian magistrate, you've got to be wise uh, to what all the godless magistrates around you are up to. Uh, and this kind of naive assumption that, that everybody's neutral is completely unbiblical. There is no neutrality. Just read Romans 1. And, and, and we need to be clear then that we're going to have a battle on our hands, a fight on our hands. So that's kind of one aspect of the answer. The other aspect of your answer, as, as citizens uh, under the civil magistrate, well, it's extremely clear, isn't it, from Acts of the Apostles, that we're not to anticipate uh, uh, civil disobedience as being rare. We, we shouldn't think to ourselves, 
well, I'm, I'm probably going to live my entire life and never have any issue with the civil magistrate, civil magistracy. That seems to me not to be a biblical position. We, we sh- we're not looking for opportunities to stand out against the magistrate, but nonetheless, neither are we naively anticipating that we can just take whatever the magistrate says and assume that it's always going to be fine. We should be questioning all the time because in the title of my book, Under God, over the people. So the authority of the civil magistrate comes from God. So the Christian needs to know what does the civil magistrate legitimately have the right to command me to do? And what does he not have the right to command me to do? What are his responsibilities under God and what are not? Because it seems to me there's two issues here. One is when should I actively disobey because they're commanding me to do something which is godless? Um, But B, when should I be questioning the civil magistracy because they are reaching into areas which are not their sphere of jurisdiction? So is it in the sphere of jurisdiction of the civil magistrate at all to say, oh, because of a pandemic, you mustn't dip people in water. It's okay to sprinkle them. We actually had that in the UK. It's just extraordinary that the civil magistrate should imagine that he has any jurisdiction there at all, or to say um, you, you can you can participate in the Lord's Supper, but you mustn't sing over the elements, or that um, you can meet together as we had, but we strongly advise you not to sing at all, and so on. So, so do you see the two points I'm raising there? The one is, are they commanding us to do something ungodly? But then the second is, are they? Uh, reaching into an area where it is for the church to determine, not not the civil magistracy. So each of the examples you gave had that in common, that those are things that are under the church's purview. So so that that, that seems to be, that's that's where you're drawing the lines. You're saying there are certain things that the church has authority over, um, public worship, the sacraments, and then there are other things that the civil magistrate uh, exercises proper authority in. Okay, that's helpful. Amen. Yeah, absolutely, brother. And I, and I think we need to think that through. Which is which, you know? And, and I think for, for me as a Reformed Baptist, you know, we don't have a great record here, having distinguished between the two. Uh, we we we've been extremely flabby in our thinking, and it's been exposed in the last two years. So you're writing in your Reformed Baptist context, and and as you said, there, there, there may have been some areas in which we weren't very sharp. Uh, we hadn't really thought these things through, or we'd, we'd in the past made uh, compromises that, that, that came back around to bite us. But did you find that that kind of careful study in which you engaged with your congregation was divisive or was actually unifying, and I'm not specifically asking for details about your own congregation, but in general, because I'm wondering too about the difference between perhaps the UK and the American context or the similarities. Was that a discussion which was um, engaged in in a spirit of unity among among Bible-believing Christians? Yeah, I really appreciate the question, Uh, Jonathan. It's a really, really good question. I think more broadly, uh, in, in the UK context, as Reformed Baptists, we, we were exposed and there's been an enormous amount of division 
an enormous amount of confusion. Churches have been um, split uh, in 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 terrible ways, and and I do think, particularly for us, we we thought we had it all sorted. You know, we had this simplistic view. Well, you've got the church here, and you've got the civil authority there, and the two are distinct, and never the twain shall meet. And you know, we're all sorted. It's all fine. And and really, that has been so naive. That has been so exposed. For us as a church. I think the reason why we've been able to maintain our unity as a church and we haven't seen division in our church, thank God, is because we, we, we've spent 10 years and more rooting ourselves in a confessional position. And that's very, very unusual for Reformed Baptists in the UK. Don't know how it is so much in the States. But for us over here, our Presbyterian brothers are far stronger in their confessional position and would go to their confession and would, would go to their fathers in the faith for guidance. For us, generally speaking, that is not how it is. We have this naive view that we can just open our Bibles and work it all out for ourselves. This sort of raw biblicism, which I think is extremely naive and very dangerous. Um, but we as a church here have sought to go against that trend uh, and to be rooted in a confessional position. So we, when we came to this crisis, we said, well, let us see what our confession says. Let us see how our fathers in the faith work this through. And, and that really led us to a lot of unity, despite different perspectives on the medical aspects and the public health aspects of, of COVID-19 and so on. We were able to be united in that confessional conviction. That was very, very useful to us. We were very thankful for it. Did you find the same degree of unanimity when you looked at the historical witness? You, you, you began by saying that what you did um, early on in 2020 was you, you studied your confession and you, you did some kind of digging as to what, what those in our tradition have said in the past. What did you find when you, when you did that digging? Did you find relative unanimity and, and we had just lost that legacy? Or, or, or was there a, a wide diversity of opinion on, on how to handle these things? Well, yeah, that's a big question. And, and we started today, Jonathan, by saying that we were theology on the go. And so we weren't going to have a it's long. It's true. It's true. Well, this one you can blame, you can blame on me. No point taken. Maybe is there a short version of the answer? Um, yeah, is there a mainstream that you saw? Yeah, I think, for again, for us as confessional Baptists, looking back to that moment in, in 1689 on Broken Wharf, uh, when the men met together and adopted the confession that had been written in 1677, I think there was a, a significant degree of unanimity in the position that these men took, uh, which comes out in our confession of faith and obviously differences to Westminster at this particular point. Uh, and, and the men had come to a, a measure of unanimity uh, and we were able to draw on that as we find it in the wording of our confession. One of the benefits that, that we have, as it were, is that we were the latest to the party in the, in the 17th, 16th and 17th century. And so we had the benefit, you know, my colleague Jim Renahan loves to point this out. We have the benefit. We've got all the creeds and all the reformed confessions out there before us. And we're able to come to it as, as you know, the last in the party, as it were. So we had that benefit. So I think by that stage, there was a degree of unanimity. Yeah. 
I wonder also if some of those 17th century reform confessions, I'm thinking particularly of of uh, Savoy and Second London in this connection, had really emerged in a state of bona fide nonconformity, whereas maybe the Westminster Confession, a little different than this, was actually... um, undertaking the work of presenting a kind of a kind of uniformity that never did obtain. Uh, and so by 1662, the Presbyterians were sort of officially part of that nonconformist cause. But I, I wonder if in the sort of con- contextual background of those confessions and of that historic experience in the UK, the question of nonconformity and of the magistrate and the sword and the affairs of the church were uh, sort of worked out in ways that they never had to in the United States, at least after colonial New England. Um, and so I, I think in the United States, we, it's hard for us to even think about a nonconformist tradition. That's something that took place in a different country in a very different context. Uh, and yet we've also experienced uh, an intrusion of the civil magistrate in the state of California. Instructions were being given by the governor about administration of sacraments and corporate worship and how to do it. Um, this from someone who makes, you know, as we, as we like to say in the United States, we didn't elect the pastor in chief uh, when we have uh, elected officials. And so maybe, maybe in our context too, this is just for you, it's going back to history. For us, it's something we haven't historically thought much about. Yeah, th- thanks for that, James. That's very helpful. And I think 1662 is is a very critical moment. You know, the, the the Presbyterians in this country had spent best part of 100 years fighting their cause within the established church. And finally, I think by the time we get to the early days of Charles II, that attempt has manifestly come crashing down. Um, and so we enter into the period of bona fide nonconformity. Um, from then on. So the scene does change. And and Second London, as you point out, comes in that later period rather than the earlier period. So, Well, we are out of time, as you as you alerted us to uh, earlier. We are out of time. I, it, it's a conversation that has um, significant implications for us. And it's it's been on the minds of many pastors here uh, for at least the last two years. And so thank you for your contribution to this. Uh, again, the title's Under God, Over the People, and Oliver Almond smith uh, thanks for joining us today. Well, James, that's a discussion that, um, as we alluded to, many people have been having, and it was too much to go into all the history of it, but one of the, one of the points that Oliver made, both on the air briefly and then when we were discussing as well off the air, was that the idea that the civil magistrate is neutral, is is not an idea that you find in any of the historical documents we might look at. So there are definitely different ways of handling this throughout church history, and uh, you can find you can find different approaches even in Reformed Baptist literature or more broad broadly Reformed literature. But but that that fact of the non neutrality is an important one. Yeah, and I think, and Oliver brings this out early in his book that our that our default posture is one of living, you know, living at peace with all men, so much as it belongs to us, and that includes the civil magistrate. So that there's not a, a kind of um, Marxist revolutionary 
uh, d- dynamic at work here? I, I don't know. In, in your readings of the 17th century, and this is really your area, I suppose, professionally, but um, in your readings of the 17th century, certainly you probably read later historians, Marxist historians, who would go back and they would look at something like Puritan Protestant nonconformity in the English context, and they saw in it the seeds of Marxist revolution. Any kind of resistance of the authority, they sort of claimed as either bona fide Marxism or proto-Marxism. But this is this that is really not the posture of the Christian toward the civil magistrate. We want the civil magistrate to thrive and to do its job and to keep people free and to restrain true injustices. Uh, and to be under God and over us in a way that is for, I think the confession says, the public good. So it's not a, it, it's not an iconoclastic, revolutionary posture. And even nonconformity is that. No non, interestingly, no nonconformist in the 17th century, and hopefully no nonconformist in the 21st century, wants to be a nonconformist. Wants to be. Well, you make a number of really good points. Obviously, there is a whole school of historiography with respect to the Puritans that takes that approach. But I think at a more popular level, you can see that today with many who are mining those 17th century sources to find the, the places where they said you, you, the government didn't have authority, the civil magistrate didn't have authority, and to sort of use those as a wedge. Um, and you're right, that's not the whole tone and tenor of the discussion. And, and, and it's worth mentioning too, that even though our questions went in slightly in that direction, you know, when are we exempted from submitting? When has the magistrate gone too far? The reality is Oliver's book doesn't start there. Uh, It starts with what you just articulated, which is live at peace with all men. And we want to see the civil magistrate flourish because it is given to us by God for a good purpose and we recognize that good purpose and we honor that. Uh, and 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 that that has to be our, our starting point. Yeah. And if that's the case, then then we're gonna our inclination should be to, you know, to draw those lines carefully. And I think we're right, and and Oliver's right to direct us back to some earlier generations that were probably forced to think more concretely about a strained relationship with the civil magistrate and find where those spheres of authority present boundaries to each other. But I think he's also right in his broad assessment that in the West, especially uh, in the Anglo-American experience, we have probably settled into an overly naive position that the civil magistrate is basically good and is basically going to leave us alone. And frankly, most of us have have lived our lives pretty much left alone pretty much uh, until recently. And now we're having to think about these things probably in, in new ways, or at least new to us. Well, that's the thing too, that that's striking about this discussion is uh, the Lord brings these things into, into our lives and into the church to sharpen us, to cause us to look more carefully at what the scriptures teach and perhaps things the scriptures don't teach that we've assumed. And, uh, and that, that that's ultimately for our good. Well, uh, we're glad that you've tuned in to listen to Theology on the Go today. If you know anyone who might be helped by this podcast, please forward it to them. We love hearing from our listeners as well. So if you have topics or ideas or individuals uh, that you'd like us to cover here, we'd be glad to hear from you on that. Also, if you're interested in getting a copy of Oliver Allman Smith's book, Under God, Over the People, 
We'll have some free copies available. You can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link. There'll be a, an opportunity there for you to enter your information for the chance to win uh, a copy of this. And the book also is now available, and so you can purchase it yourself, a very relevant topic. And whether you uh, come to agree with everything that he says in the book, you'll find it very stimulating and I think uh, oriented certainly from a biblical perspective. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. I'll also say this, that we can only do this because of the support of generous donors like you. So if you can donate, you can. You're, 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 uh, we have an, a way for you to do that on alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. Click on the donate button on either of those sites. And thanks as always for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Did you know that most people view a church's website before they'll ever step foot in the door? So how's your church's site? Would an online visitor searching for a church home find it inviting? Does it reflect your ministry as it should? Perhaps it's time to start a new site for your church that reaches out more effectively with a design that engages visitors while keeping members connected. Reformation Sites has beautiful, mobile-ready designs to choose from helpful service, and useful features such as sermon manager, online bulletins, ministries, books, and notifications. It also integrates with other popular services like sermon audio, live streaming, and online giving with pricing that fits into any church budget. In the month of May, we're offering 15% off the website setup fee. Get started by using coupon code RS15 when you go to reformationsites.com. Reformation Sites, church websites for a modern reformation.